Now, to start things off, let's read from the scriptures. So Genesis chapter two, if you have a Bible or a phone and an app, whatever, skip down. Let's start off in chapter two, verse four. We read this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, or the universe, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, kind of like LA, for the Lord God had not, sorry, I'm from the land of green. Tim and I are driving here this morning. He said, oh yeah, that's right next to the river. You have a river in LA? And he meant like the concrete sewer thing, you know? Like that. Like, dude, you need to come visit me. We have river. Like that's, whatever that is, it's not a river, all right? So when the Lord God had sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed Amman, or Adam in Hebrew, a man or a human being, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We'll talk more about that later in the day. Skip down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Remember that for later. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, which is a fantastic chick flick from the 90s, he took, I'm old enough to still love that movie, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, and here's poetry, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. Guys, the first human being on the planet was a poet, but if that's intimidating, he's not very good. It's like, she shall be called woman. Okay, that's... Keep evolving. Now that, 24, is why a man leaves. Listen to this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become echad in Hebrew, or one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And my wife, Tammy, is right down here in the front row. She's way better looking than me, which is fantastic. And um, we, for my wife and I, it was honestly kind of love at first sight. I know for some of you, skeptical, whatever. It, it just was. Maybe that's because I was really young. But it was love at first sight for us. I remember within a few weeks of meeting each other, we had not even been on a date. And I remember I was with my roommate. I was really young. I think I was 18 or 19 years old. With my roommate. And I remember three weeks into meeting her, I said, dude, I think she's it. I think she is, you know, the one for me or whatever. And he obviously was super annoyed. He said, dude, you don't even know her. But yeah, man, but it's it. I know. It was like love at first sight. And so we start to date and we fall in love and it's like all the electricity. It's like every chick flick you've ever like dreamed. It's all you've ever dreamed, right? So then we marry really young, like prior to reading study after study that said, don't do that. But we marry really young. Her parents wanted me to be 21 before we got married. And this tells you a lot about my personality. We got married the first Saturday after my 21st birthday. <laughs> that just, like, that's a telltale sign of issues that I have. So we get married, you know, and ah, oh, the bliss is there. 
But honestly, really early on for my wife and I, it started to get rough because we learned, you know, that we are polar opposite people. So I am introverted and type A and driven and high strung and melancholy and just not that fun to be around. My wife, on the other hand, is, you know, extroverted, life of the party, social, laid back, phlegmatic, happy, all the everything that I'm not as a human being. And so that's all fantastic, but after a while, you know, we started driving each other crazy. Hey, want to hang out? No, I want to be alone and read. Like, <laughs> such a beautiful day. No, it's not. It's like, ah. So, um, and I remember we were, we were driving in the car, I don't know, six months into our, into our marriage. I think we were out running errands. This was back in the day when you would listen to the radio other than NPR, okay? And so we're driving in the car, and it was eharmony.com had just, is that still a thing? I think, yeah. So it was kind of brand new at the time. I was like, wow, the internet. And um, there's an advertisement from, what's his face, the kind of spokesman, doctor guy, whatever his name is. And I remember his closing line at the, at the end of the advertisement was, opposites attract and then attack. <laughs> it's like this awkward silence in the, so honey, what's the next stop? Right, and we started to realize that, oh my gosh, we are two very different people, and that comes with a lot of good and a lot of not so good. And so not that long into the marriage, you know, some of that electric, romantic, all that feeling stuff started to fade away, and we started to, me in particular, because I'm the introverted, like, melancholy person, I started to ask all sorts of kind of brutally honest questions. Did we make a mistake? We're so young, I mean, who knows anything about anything at 21 years old? I mean, are we a bad fit for each other? Why don't I feel the way I used to? Why is it not, you know, electric or what it once was? And all this stuff was swirling around in my head. And, you know, you don't feel like you can talk to your wife about, why don't I feel the way I used to feel about you, you know? So all of this stuff, and there's guilt, and there's shame, and there's kind of all this stuff. But in hindsight, my kind of mini crisis of faith, not with Jesus, but with my marriage, was based on an off-kilter theology of marriage, meaning 90% of the problem was in my head. My marriage was actually doing pretty well, but in my mind, something was off in how I think about what it means to be man and wife. In short, I had no idea what marriage is for. And I was not alone. I would argue that the vast majority of us have a pretty good idea what marriage is, right? If you think about the last few years and just the volcanic kind of ah, poisonous almost debate at a national level over marriage and who's it for. And it's interesting, a sizable, obviously shrinking, but sizable chunk of Americans are adamant, no, marriage is between a man and a woman and it's for life, and it's till death to us part, and so there's all this rhetoric around what marriage is, but what was shocking to me is that through all of the kind of vitrolic, you know, PR and the talking heads and the op-eds, all of, through all of it, little or nothing has been said about what marriage is for, other than a tax write-off and health insurance, which is awesome, by the way. But there's got to be a little bit more than that. Hardly anything is said at a national or a cultural level, but what is marriage for? Or put another way, what's the point? In a world where your odds are right around 50%, or maybe if you're you know, educated and religious, maybe you're at 75 or whatever, 
In a world where that is the reality, what's the point? Why would anybody take that kind of question? And I think that is a legitimate, that kind of chance, I think that is a legitimate question. And so that's where Genesis comes in. At the end of Genesis 2, we read about the first marriage of all time between the proto-human Adam and his wife Eve. And then we read that stunning line in 24, chapter 2, verse 24. That is why... A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. In Hebrew, this line right here is an interpolation from God himself. It's the author's way of saying, okay, listen up, pay attention. This marriage right here is a paradigm for all marriages. So Adam and Eve are not a one-off. It's a template for you to kind of pour your life and future marriage into. I mean, if you think about it, Adam didn't have a father or mother to leave. And Eve didn't have any other options, frankly. But still... It's written in such a way as to make the reader, you or myself, kind of slow down and take notice. This story right here is ground zero for what I would call a theology of marriage. And the key line is the first three words, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, which raises the question, what is why? What is why a man leaves father and mother? What is why, or put another way, it can be actually translated, for this reason a man leaves his father and mother, which raises the question, for what reason? Well, as I see it in the Genesis story right here, there are four reasons why God created marriage, or kind of four answers to the question, why get married in the first place? What's the meaning? What's the point? Why is it there, and what's it all about? So if you're taking notes, write this down. If not, feel guilty. First off, Um, Friendship, if you're taking notes, write down friendship. So in 18, chapter two, verse 18, we read that line, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, if you've ever read Genesis 1 and 2 before, you know that it's written in semi-poetic language, and all the way through, there's this refrain, and it sounds something like, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And so he creates the sun and the moon and the stars, it's good, and he creates animal life, it's good. And then we get kind of to the end of the narrative, and there's this dissonant kind of out of tune note. We read that God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So it's kind of like God creates Adam and says, oh, whoops, like, dang it, something's not right here. Well, why not? Why is it not good for Adam to be alone? Short version is because human beings are made in God, in the language of Genesis 1, in God's image and likeness. That means a lot, but for starters, it means that we are called to image God, to mirror and mimic what God the creator is like to the creation. That's a problem here in the story for Adam because God exists in a web of life-giving relationships. Early in the story, in chapter one, God has this stunning line, quote, let us make man in our image. And so for millennia, Um, thinkers about the Bible have been asking the question, who is the us? Who is God talking to? And there are all sorts of answers, but I think the most likely is that God, in all honesty, is talking to himself. Later, we learn from Rabbi Jesus that God himself exists in three persons, God the Father in the language of Jesus, and then, of course, Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God, and then the Spirit that is all around us right now as we speak. At this point in the story, all we know is that God is relational by nature and that God is not alone. 
Now, I cannot tell you how often I hear, at least growing up in the church, how often I hear people say something like, hey, all you need is God. And while that does make for a fantastic Hillsong song, um, (laughs) the problem is that God never says, all you need is God. In fact, God says the exact opposite. God says, it is not good for the man or for human to be alone. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to get married. There are other ways to live in community. Jesus was single. Paul, who's the most prolific theologian in the New Testament, was also single. And for followers of Jesus, singleness can be a fantastic way to live. But single or married, you and I were created for community, for relationships. And what better way to do that than marriage? In fact, it is one of, I think it's at the top of the list, one of the reasons God created marriage. It's not good for the man to be alone. For you to walk through life with somebody, with your spouse as your best friend, as the primary relationship in your life, not one of the relationships, and then you got to the pub with your bros, right? Do you have bros in California? Whatever. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I hate that word anyway. But for your spouse as your best friend, the one who knows you better than anybody, To know and be known is a powerful thing. Most of us are scared to death of intimacy because we're scared to death that once people learn who we actually are, nobody would love us, right? That's why we curate an image on social media of ourselves that's obviously nowhere close to reality. It's why we fake it. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's why when we ask, how are you? All you do is tell the good stuff. Because we're scared to death that if somebody actually knew who I was, nobody would love me. And one of the best things, if not the best about marriage, is it smashes that lie into a million pieces. And you come to know and be known in intimacy and vulnerability. And somebody, my wife knows every single character defect that I have. And trust me, it's not a short list. She still loves me. She still wants to spend a day off with me. She still wants to go get coffee and hang out and talk. She still wants to go on vacation with me every summer. She still loves me in spite of all of that. And that is hands down one of my favorite things about my wife and about my marriage. Still, what what are we, 13 years in? I'm still shocked that she hasn't kicked me out. (laughs) And I'm even more shocked that she still likes me. Now that might mean you need therapy, honey, but, (laughs) but that is a powerful, Reality. There's nothing like waking up in the morning next to my best friend and knowing that I'm not alone. So, first off, friendship. Then secondly, if you're taking notes, um, gardening. And stay with me here. I mean this in a metaphoric sense. Don't worry. I know I'm from Portland, but I don't take it that far, okay? (laughs) So, in chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the, what? The garden of Eden to, and notice the language, work it and take care of it. So Adam, the proto-human, is put in this garden, or this kind of, think of a national wilderness, and he's called to take it and take all the raw materials and essentially turn it into a city, a place for civilization to grow and thrive. But there's just one problem. The garden is gigantic, right? Imagine it the size of a state or a country or a continent, and he's just one dude. So he is incapable of doing what God has called him to do all by himself. 
which is why in 18 we read, it is not good for the man to be alone. Second half of that sentence is, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the word helper is ezer in Hebrew. Can you say that? Ezer? Well done. And it sounds a little bit derogatory, in all honesty, in English, like God made Adam a personal assistant. Um, But it's not that way at all in Hebrew. It can be translated partner. It means one who comes alongside to help achieve a goal. The exact same word is actually used for God in the Psalms. So King David, the poet, writes, quote, God or Yahweh is my helper. In other places in the Old Testament, it's used of military reinforcements without which an army would be crushed. So a helper or an azare is not an employee or somebody that you boss around. A helper is an equal. The language is used a line or two later of suitable, meaning on the same level. It's somebody that you love, that you respect, that you trust, who comes alongside as a partner in a project, as an ally in a war, and it's all for the sake of gardening, if you want to use that kind of language, or for maybe what you and I would call work. I would argue that everybody, male or female, needs a gardening project. Put another way, everybody needs a sense of calling in life, a sense of this is what I was put on earth to do, this is what I'm good at, what I'm bad at, this is what I'm made for, this is how God wired me, this is my corner of the Garden of Eden to, in the language of Genesis 1, rule over and cultivate and draw out its potential. So you have to ask the question, what's my gardening project? What's my calling? What's my work? What has God made me to do? And in my opinion, you need to be able to answer that question on the front end of marriage, before you walk down the aisle, if at all possible. Or in time, there's a chance that your marriage will come off the wheels. And here's why. All healthy marriages are built around a calling. I say that again, all healthy marriages are built around a calling. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will collapse in on itself. If the end goal of your relationship is your relationship, over time it will self-destruct. You can only sit at intelligentsia and stare into each other's eyes for so long. At some point, you have to get up and do something. Right? At some point, your marriage or your relationship has to be more than, I really like you. Oh, I really like you too. Great. Oh, we have a lot to talk about. Awesome. Fun. What happens when you've already had that conversation 300 times? Like, then you just spend the rest of your life, how do you like Interstellar? Well, it was really good, but the plot hole at the end, I don't know. That's it? There go the next 60 years of marriage, all right? So I know this raises as many questions as it does answers. What if you have no clue what, if you're, what your calling is? Or what if you're not sure? Or what if your calling changes over the years? Or what if you're already married and your, call, and your spouse's calling is, is out of sync with your own? Or you're engaged to be married and it doesn't line up? Or these are all sorts of healthy questions I don't have time for, ask Tim later. Um, <laughs> for, for here and now, what we do have time for, all I'm trying to say is that marriage is a means to an end. And please hear me, most people do not think of it this way. Marriage is a means to an end, meaning it exists for something far larger than itself. So sisters, at the risk of sounding maybe a little before my time or after my time, don't marry a man without a gardening project. No matter how charming or romantic or handsome or spontaneous or stylish and well-dressed or successful or whatever he is, if he isn't a gardener, it won't work. 
There's a command in the New Testament for you to love and to respect him and to follow him. How will that work if you don't respect where he is or is not going? And brothers, don't marry a woman who doesn't want to be your azare, and that does not mean personal assistant, all right? There's not a sexist overtone in that. But don't marry someone who doesn't want to be your partner right at your side, not behind you or in front of you, but right at your side, no matter how smart or funny or sexy or interesting she is. If she doesn't want to partner with you in what Jesus called the kingdom of God and how God's wired you and what God has called you as a couple to do, how in the world will your marriage be about more than your marriage? And if you ignore this and you walk into marriage with no sense of calling, no sense of your shared life and what God has made you together to go do, it's only a matter of time until you get bored. And you start thinking, what's next? Who's the next relational high? Who's the next sexual high? This isn't that interesting. We've already seen Interstellar, blah, blah, blah. We've had the, what's next? It's implanted into your humanness because God didn't just make you to go out and have a glass of wine once a week and call it date night for the next 50 years. God made you to shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, partner together, and go make an Eden-like world. So, friendship, then gardening, and third, if you're taking notes, is sexuality. So the last line in the story, chapter two, verse 25, is Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So that kind of sounds like reality TV gone bad, right? Two like young, amorous, naked people in a garden, like all alone. Um, but it's actually the first love story in the scriptures. And I think it's interesting that one of the first stories in all of the Bible is a story about what? About love and about relationships. So they were friends, yes, and they were partners as well in the garden, but they were also lovers. So this is basic theology, but you know this, but God created the human body, all of the human body. Not one part of you is by accident. I doubt God looked down at Adam and Eve in the garden messing around and thought, what the heck, that's not what those are for? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you're doing that with, oh my God, that? No. So I, I doubt it, right? So now, your sexuality is a part of your humanity. Now, it's not the defining characteristic of who you are, gay, straight, whatever. But it is, no doubt, a part of your humanity. We're going to talk more about this in the next section. session. But for now, section, whoops, that was bad. <laughs> session, but for now, know that God created your sexuality. And listen, he created marriage as the context for you to enjoy and express your sexuality with another human being. And the inverted is also true. He created sexuality as the glue or as the bonding agent for your marriage to keep the two of you one and together. Now your desire for sex isn't like your need for food or water. You don't have to get married and have sex in order to live a happy life. Jesus is living proof of that. Jesus was single and he lived a happy, flourishing, whole, integrated life. But if you want to get married in order to have sex, that's not bad or evil or shallow or selfish, as long as it's not the only reason you want to get married. Then we have another issue. Because sex is one of the reasons that God created marriage. And then lastly is family. So friendship, guardian, sexuality, family. Early on, back in chapter one, 
and right around 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So that's actually the first command in all of the Bible. God commands the original human beings to make babies. So like, I like this God on page one. I'm in. He's a God who is really into the family. In Genesis, family is the building block of society as a whole. Throughout the scriptures, God is called father. We are called, as we said before, um, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters of God. Family is at the heart of God's vision for the world. And just like marriage, family is about more than family, right? If we're going to fill the earth and subdue it, which is what God commands, that's going to take more than one couple and more than one family. That's going to take all of the human race arm in arm. And that does not mean that every married couple needs to, that you all need to get married, and that every married couple needs to have kids. Some can't for obvious reasons. And there are other ways, I think, to live into that calling. But it does mean that family is one of the reasons God created marriage. So, there you have it. That's it. Friendship, gardening, sexuality, family. That's the why. That's the reasons for marriage. It's why you walk down the aisle, the reasons you make that promise until death do us part. Friendship, gardening, sexuality, and family. There's just one problem. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. Obviously. Have you seen your river? So... We are a long ways from the Garden of Eden. Um, in Genesis, we read at the end of chapter 2, Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. It's this beautiful moment, and it's this short-lived moment. right? How I wish Genesis 2 was the end of the Bible, and then we could skip to Revelation 21. It was more like a pamphlet, you know? But in between, if you know kind of the the narrative arc of what the scriptures are all about. In between, in chapter three, you have the introduction of this thing called sin, where Adam and Eve rebel against God's kingship or authority over creation and do their own thing with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's interesting, the first place that sin wreaks havoc is in the marriage. If you turn the page to chapter three and you skip down to you know, verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, the woman, I love this line, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. So not only does he sound like a 10 year old, right? Blame shifting, but here he is. So the woman that you gave me, blaming God, she gave me, and now blaming Eve. And the first sitcom marriage is born. Seriously, two people at each other's throats, blame shifting, distance, sarcasm, bitterness, anger, it's all there. And as you know, we are the sons and daughters, so to speak, of Adam and Eve, meaning we are all born with the exact same bent. But the good news, or what Jesus called the gospel, is that Jesus' agenda with the kingdom of God is to fix everything. So to remake every square inch of the universe into a garden-like place, an Eden, all over again. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus is starting that work in the here and now with his followers, with you and me. I'm assuming the majority of you are followers of Jesus. So think of that famous line in the New Testament where the writer Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, 
Now, new creation is this way of saying the future kind of remaking of the cosmos from top to bottom, post-resurrection, a brand new Eden-like world. Paul is saying that future reality is alive in the here and now in Jesus' followers. So Jesus, one day, is going to make everything new in the entire cosmos, and in the here and now, he's starting with you, with me, with every single person who says, Jesus is Lord. That's an absolutely beautiful reality. But as we know, this idea of kind of recreation, it's a process, not an event. It's a lifelong, drawn-out, slow, gradual process as we become more and more the new creation that Jesus is getting at. Now, if you're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with marriage? A lot. For starters, it blows up the idea of the one, right? This long-standing urban legend that out there somewhere is one person custom made by God to make you incredibly happy for the rest of your lives. That out there is your soulmate or your missing half or somebody made to complete you. I mean, whatever the cultural language is, this idea that there is one person out of the seven billion people on the planet, there is one person out there made to complete you. Not only is that wrong, but it's incredibly wrong. Um, Tim Keller, in his, he has this great book on marriage. It's kind of like mine, just way better. And, um, <laughs> and he makes this great point about how at, one, at some level, every other human being on the planet is a bad match for you. It's just that some people are way less of a bad match than others. And I love that. I mean, there, in some ways, my wife and I, it's like we're this custom fit match, right? I'm socially awkward. She's the life of the party. I'm melancholy. She's happy all the time. I'm impatient. She's patient. So there's this like beautiful, it's like God knew all the areas where I suck and all the areas where she's awesome. And she's like, dude, you need help. Here, get married. Sorry, Tammy, I'll be with you. All right? <laughs> so in some ways, I mean, it's like, we're a match made in heaven. And then in other ways, it's kind of like we're a match made in the other place. <laughs> you know? So it's like, I love to be early for everything. I'm like hyper punctual on time. My wife is like Cuban, and the clock is just like a decoration. <laughs> like it doesn't really mean anything at all, you know? Uh, I'm a planner, so like I'm just absolutely OCD, type A, perfectionist, I'm just really annoying. And so I have to plan out everything. So if I have a day off, then the first thing I do is the night before I plan out my day off, hour by hour. Even if there's like a three hour block time of like sit in my living room and do whatever I want, I have to have that block time, right? It's like, oh, we just hit three o'clock, it's over. Now we're gonna do this, all right? My wife's idea of a day off is you just kind of like meander through life and Enjoy every little surprise like a butterfly. Wow. You know? So my point being, in some ways, we, we are such a great match, and in other ways, we are a horrific match. But listen, I would argue that's a good thing. In fact, I would argue that in the wake of Genesis 3, in the wake of sin and human rebellion, that a fifth reason for marriage is maybe even added, and that is what I would call recreation. Meaning marriage is a context for you to become the person that God intended you to be all along. Or put another way, for you to become more like Jesus. So my wife brings out the best in me 
She sees um, what the writer Thomas Burton calls the true self. There's this great Catholic writer, Thomas Burton. He writes about the false self, which is who you are now, and your true self, which is who you are becoming meaning the actual, real, true you that God created that right now is underneath layer after layer after layer of sin and junk and baggage and insecurity and sin. Underneath all of that is the real you. My wife has this uncanny way of seeing me how Jesus sees me and seeing the real me and then pushing and pulling me to become who I actually am. So she brings out the best in me. She also brings out the worst in me. She also brings out what the writer Paul called the flesh. Have you read that in your Bible before? (laughs) He means like that kind of ugly, nasty, primal, ape-like part of you that is just a selfish jerk. Living in close, and it's not that she does that on purpose, it's that living in close proximity with anybody, even if it's just a roommate, but in particular if it's a husband or a wife, it it does that to you, it brings out the best and the worst. I thought I was a pretty decent guy, and then I got married. Turns out I'm kind of a tool shed. So, like, she was incredibly helpful in me learning that about myself. And in all honesty, and there's no, like, secret, there's no skeleton in the closet, our marriage has not been easy at all. Um, That's why, like, my book isn't, like, you know, three tips to an awesome date night. I need to read that book, not write it. It's a theology book because, for me, I had to rethink everything because my idea of what marriage even was for was not only off, it was at odds with what Jesus is getting at. And so, man, there have been some highs and there have been some lows, but now, 13 years in, I would not trade what we have for the world because there's a depth, there's a substance, there's a, we've been through it together, there's a bandwidth that we have that nothing can push or pull me away from. So, to recap, friendship, gardening, sexuality, family, and then I would argue recreation. Now, here's the problem. That's not why most of us get married. I mean, it's not why I got married. I mean, I was into that stuff. Friends, yes, we were best friends. Gardening, yep, I had a decent idea of what I was called to do, and she was up for that, and we were kind of together and what her calling was. Sexuality, don't need to deal, fill in the details, but yes, I was down. Um, family, we both wanted a family someday, and of course we both wanted to become more like Jesus. I don't think we wanted our marriage to be how that happened, but all right. The problem is, that's not why I got into marriage. I got married, short answer, to be happy. Like millions upon millions upon millions of Americans, I met a woman, I fell in love when I was around her, I was incredibly happy on top of the world, she made me feel really good about myself, and I wanted that to continue for the rest of my life. And that sounds innocuous at first, right? It sounds maybe even romantic, but the problem is that's not the reason for marriage. I would argue it's the byproduct of a healthy marriage, but it's not the reason for it. God doesn't look down at Adam in the garden and say, man, you look sad, buddy. You look alone and you need a lift. You know what? I'm going to make another woman custom fit to make your life awesome, and she's just going to make you happy all of the time until you die. Like, no. Like, that's, a spouse is not a substitute for God. 
I cringe when I'm at a wedding and the, it's usually the guy, but sometimes it's the woman. The groom says, you know, in the vows or at the you know, reception or whatever, I promise to make you happy. Because I'm socially awkward and introverted, I, I just want to stand up in the back of the room and shout, you can't keep that promise. <laughs> Take it back before God right now, you know? Stop it. But my wife would like break a rib or two with her elbow, you know, so... I've yet to do it, but like everything in me is like, oh, seething out of my pores. Like, take it. You can't do that. Nobody can because you're not God. You can't keep that. that is a, if you make that promise, it is a promise that nobody can keep, no matter how charming or successful or wealthy or happy or nice or romantic you are, nobody can keep that promise. Is it any wonder that the number one justification for divorce, which is a ton of 20-somethings in here, how many of us have friends that are 25, 26, 28, and already divorced? I have tons. The number one justification for divorce is you deserve to be what? Happy. How many of you have heard that line over and over and over? You deserve to be happy. You're not a great fit. It's not how it was. You deserve to be happy. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you won't be happy in marriage. I am. Most of the best memories of my life have Tammy right at the center of them. Moving to Portland, planning a church, the day our first child was born, sabbatical this summer in Kauai, like all of the best memories of my life, she's there. If I were to edit her out of my story, it would become flat and shallow and anemic. But I've learned over the years that Tammy is a stunning human being that I do not deserve. And any of you who know both of us, you're nodding your head right now. But she is not Jesus. She is not the source of fulfillment and satisfaction for the depth of my being. This is something I know in my head, but honestly, I'm still working on living it out. And hopefully, for the dozens and dozens and dozens of you that are still single, you will get this on the front side of marriage, unlike myself, who was years into, and you will avoid so much pain. Because if and when you think this way about marriage, if and when happiness does show up on your doorstep, it's icing on the cake. Now, um, to wrap up really fast before we take a break, I want to chat. Most of that was more for anything for those of you that are single, but for those of you who are married, how many of you are married here this morning? Oh, oh wow, a lot of you, my goodness. Okay, so just I want to take a few minutes for you before we take a break. Um, we make, I think, as married couples, we make three mistakes. First, we go into it for the wrong reasons. Second, we ask the wrong questions. And third, we rate the wrong person. So first, we go into it for the wrong reasons. We get married to be happy. Instead of we get married for friendship and gardening and sexuality and family and to become more like Jesus. So we go into it for the wrong reasons. Then we ask the wrong questions. Does she make me happy? Does he make me happy? Do I feel the way I used to? Is the romantic spark still alive and well? Are we the right fit for each other? Is she the one? Is he my missing half? When the right fresh questions are friendship, are we best friends? Do we hang out? Do we spend time together? Do we get coffee? Do we have a date night after we get married? Do we talk about everything? 
Are we shoulder to shoulder and face to face? Gardening, is our marriage about more than our marriage? Is it about co-creating an Eden-like world? Sexuality, are we lovers? Do we reconnect our love through the pleasure of sex over and over again? Family, if we have kids, are we raising our children to love and follow Jesus and rule over God's world? Recreation, is God using our marriage to make us more like Jesus? And trust me, if you're married, you know that 99.9% of the time, the answer to that question is, heck yeah. No matter how rough your marriage is, if if you're in that spot, maybe you're here and you're blessed. My little brother is 12 years younger than me. He just got married like six weeks ago, and I swear, it's like he's 14. He's just so happy right now. Hey, honey, googly. Oh, I haven't talked to you in 10 minutes. Let me text you, you know. (laughs) So if you're in that spot, or... If, frankly, you're a few years in or whatever and, you're, and it's rough, you know that 99.9% of the time, yes, God is using your marriage to make you more like Jesus. And then last, so we go into the wrong reasons, we ask the wrong questions, and then last, we rate the wrong person. So it's not, you know, is she, we all kind of do that mental tally in the back of our mind's eye, right? Like, how is my marriage? Or if you're dating, how is my relationship? The question is not, is she a good friend to me? when we think about friendship, but it's, am I a good friend to her? When we think about gardening or work or calling, it's not, you know, is his life about more than his life? It's, am I living to make a more garden-like world? When it comes to sexuality, it's not, do I enjoy sex with Tammy? But it's, does she enjoy sex with me? Am I serving her in a way that is filled with joy and delight for her? And, and it's not, as we think about family, it's not, is she a good mom? But it's, am I a good dad? And it's not, as we think about recreation, does she make me a better person, but do I push and pull her to become all that God intended her to be? If you go into marriage chasing after the wrong thing, happiness, asking the wrong questions, does she make me happy? Do I feel the way I used to? Is the spark alive? And then rating the wrong person. How does she do about this? I'm not sure. How does she do about that? Then at best, it will prime you for disillusionment and angst and turmoil in your heart and your soul. And at worst, obviously, you will become a part of the other 50%. But if you go into marriage chasing after friendship and gardening and sexuality and family and to become more like Jesus, and if happiness is icing on the cake and you you don't expect it or deserve it, you just thank God and your spouse for it, and if you're asking the right questions, are we friends, are we lovers, and if you're rating the the right person, then marriage, I honestly believe, can and will be just a little glimpse of Eden.